I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 18, Isabella of France crossing the Rubicon. of Edward II in the Dispenser War was as decisive as a victory could be. Oh, by the way, it was called the Dispenser War. I forgot to mention that in the last episode. The Earl of Hereford lay dead in the field. The Earl of Lancaster was executed. Gaveston was avenged. Dispenser was at his side. Life was good for Edward. But there was one person whose support he was in great danger of losing. Isabella. Lancaster may have been her enemy, but he was also a great noble of the realm, not to mention her uncle. He was of royal blood. You just don't summarily kill people like that. You just don't. It's important to remember that, for most of the Middle Ages, the death penalty was incredibly rarely enacted for people of noble blood. It was a total taboo, and one that Edward was breaking with impunity. Now, though she wasn't best pleased with Edward, it was nothing compared with her loathing of Dispenser, whom she pretty much blamed for everything. She knew her husband, had intimate experience with just how weak-willed and how easily led he was. She had already lived through Piers Gaveston, she was not keen on living that nightmare again with Dispenser. There is a theme developing with Isabella here that I have brought up before, but it bears repeating. Isabella was the very royalist of royals. As daughter of one of Christendom's mightiest and noblest royal houses, which traced its roots all the way back to Charlemagne, she had a deep inbuilt respect for royal blood and the maintenance of royal authority. When it was attacked, she fought against it, despite whatever personal misgivings she might have had about her allies. So she had supported her husband no matter what, even in defence of Dispenser. But killing a man of royal blood? It was just not on. It was far from just her, though, that felt that way. Lancaster was joined at the Gate of St. Peter by 117 other nobles, knights, and other notables. This was a reign of terror, and his subjects knew it and feared it. Here's the view of the Vita Edwardi Secundi. Quote, O calamity to see men so recently clothed in purple and fine linen, now tied in rags! 
bound and imprisoned in chains. The harshness of the king has increased so much that no one, however great or wise, dares to cross his will. The nobles of the realm are terrified by threats and penalties. The king's will has free play. Thus today might conquers reason, for whatever pleases the king, though lacking in reason, has the force of law. This reign of terror was enabled by Dispenser, and his father was promoted to a position of high prominence. Here I need to make a quick correction. In the last show I mentioned that Dispenser Senior was the Earl of Winchester when his son was born, but actually he didn't gain that title until, like, literally right now, in the wake of the victory over Lancaster. Before then, he was simply a provincial baron. Not sure how that happened, but it's yet more proof that I should not just trust some note I wrote down that one time without checking it properly. Anyway... While it was his father that technically held the superior position, the younger dispenser had the real power, as it was he who held the heart of the king. He could control him like a marionette, and it isn't hyperbolic to say that every major decision the king made from now on had at least the tacit approval of his favourite. With the opposition to Edward dead or in hiding, dispenser let the truly awful side of his personality out in a gluttony of greed and avarice. He exploited the generosity and favour of the king to its fullest, bullying and threatening nobles into selling their property to him way below their value, and extorting cash out of them through any means he could. Soon, he was richer even than Lancaster had been. But, of course, he was a jumped-up nobody, and not an earl of royal blood. And, of course, it was assumed that everything that he did had royal approval. So every enemy dispenser made was the king's enemy. Every noble he ripped off was ripped off by the king, and so on. They could get away with it for now, but the opposition would not stay down for long. After going after the small fish, the dispensers then went after the biggest fish left standing, Isabella. She was the only person left not in their pay who had any kind of intimate relationship with Edward, the only possible dissenting voice with the power to do anything. Getting rid of her was too risky, so they decided to go after her money. In 1322, Dispenser stopped paying her the rent that he owed for land in Bristol, a sum worth £200 per year for Isabella, which was a lot of money. He also made sure that Marlborough and Devizes' castles were not returned to her after the war, another tidy little revenue stream lost. Isabella must have been furious, but she knew she was not in a position to do much about it. She had no defenders, no allies. Her father was dead, and her brother was far less keen to help her out. The English court was too terrified of Dispenser to come to her aid. She was on her own. Dispenser sought a way to undermine the Queen further, and found a wedge issue. Her foreignness. Now, of course, the fact that Isabella was a French princess had been the prime reason why she had been chosen as Edward's bride in the first place, but times were changing and trouble was stirring. The French monarchy was still reeling from the Turdenelle scandal that I talked about last time, and it didn't help that their kings kept dying. In the eight years since the death of Philip the Fair in 1314, France had been ruled by no fewer than four kings, with the latest, Charles IV, succeeding in January 1322. He was the youngest brother of Isabella, having succeeded due to the disbarring of women from the succession. Like his brothers had done when on the throne, he demanded that Edward play homage for his Duchy of Gascony. Now, Edward had agreed to go to France in the past to do this, but for various reasons, and egged on by Dispenser, he refused to do so this time. This meant that Edward was at war with their queen's brother. Like most of Edward's wars, it went spectacularly badly, with large swathes of the duchy being captured in 1325 before a humiliating truce was declared. 
the anti-French feeling abounding in the kingdom gave Dispenser the cover he needed to target the Queen. He first seized her land, cutting off her chief revenue stream. Then he interred all French men and women in England, including over 20 of Isabella's attendants, claiming that they were all French spies. Finally, all her children, barring her eldest son Edward, were taken from her and put into Dispenser's care. This was a terrifying and very dangerous moment for Isabella, but the very unpopularity and incompetence of Edward and Dispenser put them in a real bind. First, a lot of high-profile nobles fled to France where they sought the protection of Charles IV. Second, they had reached an impasse when it came to the conflict with France. They could not find the troops nor a competent general to send to Gascony to prosecute the war. Dispenser could not set foot on French soil, as Charles had expressly forbidden it, and Edward refused to leave England without him, fearing that if they were separated, then his enemies would kill his favourite as they had killed Gaveston. It was an impasse, one that could only be broken by the woman they had spent the last two years steadfastly alienating. Good strategists, they were not. Isabella lobbied her husband, telling him again and again that she was the perfect candidate to send as an embassy to France to negotiate a peace. She was backed up by her brother, and none other than the Pope, who was extremely keen on a peace deal. The King and Dispenser finally agreed, and in 1325, Isabella set sail from England, accompanied by 25 of Dispenser's acolytes, who were given express instructions to keep an eye on her. She met her brother at Poissy, just north of Paris, and they thrashed out a rather generous deal for England, who would only be deprived of a small amount of the overrun land in exchange for a renewed truce, and the promise that Edward would come and pay homage within six months. Isabella had done her duty as a wife and as a queen, but once she had achieved all of this, she just sort of hung around in France. Firstly, she said she had to attend the marriage of her brother to their cousin, Joan of Evreux. Then she went on a sort of goodwill tour around the great and good of France, and quite soon she had been away for several months. She was enjoying the freedom of not being subjected to the cruel whims of Dispenser and her weak-willed husband, and had no intention of returning. In response, Dispenser and Edward started to cut back on her expenses, as she was running up quite a bill what with all that travelling, and with her land seized, she had no real income to support herself. This only further enraged Isabella. She had already decided that Dispenser had to go, and in the absence of any major opposition in England, she would need to be the one to lead the rebellion, but she still lacked the ability to do anything major, unless Edward and Dispenser made a big mistake. It was then that Edward and Dispenser made a big mistake. The deadline for Edward to pay homage for Gascony was coming due, but the problem remained that he would not leave England without Dispenser, and Dispenser could not travel to France. But Edward could not afford to lose Gascony. I mean, look what happened to King John when he had lost Normandy. It was then that Isabella played her masterstroke. She suggested to her husband that their son, Prince Edward, be invested as Duke of Gascony, and that he should be the one that came to pay homage. She gained the support of Charles, who indicated that he would be happy with that solution, and the king jumped at this nice easy fix. He agreed, though, on the proviso that Isabella came home. Now that the younger Edward would be acting as the king's representative back in France, there was no longer any need for her to stay. Prince Edward arrived in France in September 1325, and was greeted with a great big hug by his mother. While her son, the heir to the throne, had been under the thumb of Dispenser, she dared not make any kind of move. Now that he was with her, she had her opportunity. Unwittingly, Dispenser and the king had given Isabella the rope that she would use to string them up with. They had thought that Edward would be the solution to their problem, and he was, 
The issue was that his departure caused another far greater crisis than they could possibly have imagined. Now, Prince Edward had no idea that he had just become a pawn in one of the greatest marital fights in history, and he informed his mother on arrival that she was to get on the boat that he had just disembarked from and return to England. She, of course, refused, and when they got to the French court, she made possibly the most extraordinary speech made by an English medieval queen in front of the great and good of France. Quote, I feel that marriage is a joining together of a man and a woman, and someone has come between my husband and myself trying to break this bond. I protest that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but, discarding my marriage garment, shall assume the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. Now, it is important to note at this moment that she was not meaning to rebel against Edward himself. As I've said before, she had too much respect for royal blood to countenance that. She merely wanted Dispenser gone, and that speech gives us the reasons she used, namely religion. She emphasises the importance that church teaching placed on the institution of marriage, and equally attacked the heretical homosexual relationship that her husband was assumed to be having with Dispenser. She paints him as a Pharisee, which here is shorthand for an opponent of, for an opponent of Christ, as it was those Jewish leaders that were blamed in Christian teaching for advocating for the crucifixion of Jesus. This extraordinary outburst did not go unnoticed in England. Edward continued to underestimate his wife, and assumed that she must be as weak as he was, blaming evil advisers on his wife's turn against him. There followed an extraordinary series of letters between Isabella and the king. Now, I would love to have the rest of this podcast just be these letters, but I fear that might be a little overkill, so I will attempt to control myself and be sparing, but trust me, they are good. In the first letter, Edward, through some bishops who actually wrote the letter, urges Isabella to come home, saying, quote, Most dear and potent lady, the whole country is disturbed by your news and the answers that you have lately sent to our Lord King, and because you delay your return out of hatred for Hewler Dispenser. Everyone predicts much evil will follow. Hewler Dispenser has solemnly demonstrated his innocence before all, and that he has never harmed the Queen but had done everything in his power to help her. It goes on to say, quote, You who have gone away for the sake of peace, do not for the sake of peace delay to return. They, meaning the English, fear the arrival of foreigners, and that their goods will be plundered. They do not think that this comes from due affection, that you should wish to destroy a people so devoted to you through the hatred of one man. But for what you have written, that what your brother, the King of France, and your other friends of their country intend to do on your behalf will turn out not to the prejudice of the Lord King or anyone else, but to the destruction of you alone. Dearest and most powerful lady, refuse to give an opening to such a business, as its furthering can in all probability bring irrevocable loss. This sets out Edward's position on Dispenser. He was lovely. He was nice. Isabella was a weak French lady, a pawn of her nasty, nasty, nasty French brother. Isabella was in trouble, as this was quite a potent argument. Well, the French bit, not the dispenser being lovely bit. But was bailed out by her brother, who agreed to support her both financially and diplomatically. Edward then himself wrote a letter to Isabella, where he orders her to return and argues that her refusal to return due to the presence of dispenser was folly and altogether wrong. He also describes her as being duplicitous, and manages to display an extraordinary ability to rewrite history. Again, I will quote a part of this long letter. Quote, 
Lady, oftentimes we have said to you, both before and after the homage, of our great desire to have you with us, and of our great grief of heart at your long absence. And, as we understand, that you do us great mischief by this, we will that you come to us with all speed and without further excuses. Before the homage, you made us the advancement of the business an excuse. Now that we have sent by the Honourable Father, Bishop of Winchester, you are safe conduct, to you will not come for the fear and doubt of Hugh Dispenser. Whereat we cannot marvel so much when we recall your flattering deportment towards each other in our presence. Amicable and sweet was your manner, with special assurance, and looks and other tokens of firm friendship. This was a patent lie, but then Edward proves himself to be either hopelessly naive or an enormous liar. Quote, We know for truth, so know you, that he has always procured from us all the honour he could for you, nor to you have either evil or villainy been done since you entered into our companionship. He then played what he believed to be his trump card. Quote, both God and the law of the Holy Church require you, both for your honour and ours, for nothing earthly to trespass against our commandments or to forsake our company. Isabella's main argument, if you remember, had been that Edward had forsaken the vows of their marriage by carrying on with Dispenser, and now Edward was using that same argument against her, saying that she had no reason to fear Dispenser, and that in fact it was she that was going against the bonds of holy matrimony. With a patriarchy very firmly in place, who was going to side with a rebellious wife over an anointed king? He completes this letter by first accusing her of inciting her brother Charles to war against her adoptive country, and then finally implores her to return, even throwing her a carrot at the end. Quote, we charge you to as urgently as we can that, ceasing from all pretenses, delays and false excuses, you come to us with all the haste you can, and as to your expenses, when it shall be that you will come to us as a wife should to her lord, you will provide that there shall be no deficiency in aught that is pertaining to you, and you will be not in any way dishonoured by us. Also, we require of you to suffer and cause our dear son Edward to return to us with all speed, as we have ordered him, and that you in no way prevent him. The king. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Also wrote to Charles, imploring him to give up Isabella and Edward. Urging him, imploring him to give up Isabella and Edward. And then finally, he wrote to his son using similar language to what he had used to Isabella, i.e., when you left us, you promised to be a good little boy and not rebel. I'm sure you didn't mean to be disloyal. Come back, and everything will be cool. Just cool. Honest. Shockingly, Isabella did not fall for Edward's false promises, but many of the threats that he made were all too real. As unpopular as Edward and Dispenser were, they were men, and very powerful men at that. Isabella would need some influential backers if she was to survive this showdown. She already had the support of her brother, the French king, but his backing only went so far. When it came down to it, his priorities were the interests of France. Isabella needed an influential backer who had a stake in England, and right about now, she found one. His name was Roger Mortimer. Now, I have mentioned Mortimer a couple of times already, but now I'm going to fully introduce him. Roger Mortimer was born in Wigmore Castle in Herefordshire in April 1287. He was the firstborn of a middling baronial family. We first came across his family back in episode 13, Eleanor of Provence, as Roger's great-grandfather had been a key part of Henry III's army in the war against Simon de Montfort, and after his victory at Evesham, Granddaddy Mortimer had been permitted to bring back de Montfort's head and testicles to Wigmore as a gift for his wife. Being in Herefordshire, the Mortimers were known as marcher lords, men tasked with dealing with Welsh uprisings. This made them fiercely independent and very good soldiers. In 1301, Roger married the heiress Joan de Granville, a good social climbing match for him that gained him land and connections at court. Through her, he gained lands in England, Ireland and Gascony, and she bore him no fewer than 12 children, suggesting that they must have been fairly close. He inherited the baronial title from his father in 1304, and, thanks to his lands in Ireland, spent most of the early years of Edward II's reign as Lieutenant of Ireland, essentially the Governor-General. He did come back frequently, though, defending the March lands and attending important court events, including Edward's marriage to Isabella. It was there that he first met the young queen, and they seemed to have hit it off, with them exchanging correspondence for the next few years. Not that that was that unusual. Mortimer himself was a handsome devil. He was tall, well-built, and had a fearsome reputation on the battlefield. He was also unusually literate, and cultured for a man of his ilk, but did have the same urges for luxury that they all did, spending a lot of money in his early years making home improvements to his castles. Finally, like all other men in the story, he was vain, ambitious, and narcissistic, because, well, it seems that's all England had back then. Now, to bring him up to speed with this story, he had of course fallen foul of Edward II when Dispenser went after his lands in Wales, and had been one of the key members of the Ordainer Alliance in the Dispenser War. He was present at the Battle of Barrow Bridge on the side of Lancaster, and was afterwards imprisoned in the tower with his whole family, and had only been saved from the gallows by Isabella, who was a friend of Lady Mortimer. Mortimer, though, was not an easy man to keep behind bars, and he managed to effect an escape. He was the first man to escape the tower since Ranulph Flambard in 1101, a deed I described way back in episode 5 of Matilda of Scotland, 
and while it isn't strictly relevant, I shall relate it anyway, because it tickles me how cliché it is. The 1st of August, 1323, was his birthday, and also the feast day of the patron state of the tower garrison. Imprisonment in the tower was not the ghoulish thing that you might expect. It was really more of a heavily guarded hotel, where nobles could live in relative comfort in reasonably large apartments. This is perhaps one of the reasons why so few people escaped. It really wasn't all bad. Anyway, he threw a great big party for his friends and the guards on his birthday, and got everyone royally drunk. In advance of this, he had got one of his friends to sneak in a crowbar, and used it Shawshank style, to cut a tunnel out of the wall of his apartment come cell. He tunnelled into the kitchen of all places, and shimmied up a chimney onto the roof of the tower, before making it down a rope ladder that they had somehow also concealed, making it onto the wharf, where he boarded a boat to freedom. He then managed to get out of the country to the court of Charles IV, whereupon he attached himself to the court of the Count of Hainaut, whose wife Joan was one of Isabella's cousins. There, he was reunited with Isabella, who met up with them at a funeral for her uncle. Hainaut, a county in the Low Countries, was willing to provide troops to an anti-dispenser invasion of England. Why? Well, one of the Count's daughters had been promised to Prince Edward, plus there were some maritime disputes which I won't get into. In returning for agreeing to the marriage and resolving the dispute in his favour, the Count pledged his sword. This was much better than an alliance with her brother, as a French queen invading England at the head of a French army made for terrible optics. This was much better, much pluckier, and much less French. Now, of course, all this diplomacy is much less juicy than the other thing that sealed the alliance between Mortimer and Isabella. Rampant adultery. Now, of course, Isabella knew better than almost anyone what the dangers were for a queen to commit adultery, the fate of her sisters-in-law after the Tor Donella scandal were a testament to the dangers inherent in such a course of action. I went into all the reasons why it was such a taboo for a queen to commit adultery in the last show, while it was basically required for a king to have sex with anything that moved. But, in short, it has a lot to do with the security of the line of succession, and even more to do with the patriarchy. Now, I am not going to psychoanalyse the reasons behind this affair. Alison Weir makes great hay with her argument that had a lot to do with Isabella's sexual frustration after being married to Edward for so long, and while this cannot be completely discounted, I think that this has a lot more to do with power. Most things, when you come down to it, are about power. This was the ultimate power alliance. Mortimer was the archetypal medieval man. He brought the military muscle. Isabella brought the illegitimacy as queen, the family connections as a sister of the King of France, and the mother of the heir to the throne. She also brought a lot of the savvy, as we shall see. Their affair was one of those open secrets. They did not talk about it, and certainly did not flaunt it, but everyone knew what was going on. Now this was a first for medieval England. Never had a queen done this before, but then never had a queen essentially run away from her husband quite like this before either. These were unique and dangerous times, and the theme of the time seems to be, anything goes. Interestingly, the chroniclers are really quite quiet about the affair. This was totally unacceptable, and against all their religious instincts, but they really, really, really hated Edward and Dispenser, and were also writing in a post-Edward and Dispenser world, so they decided to take the lesser of two evils and tolerate it for the most part, at least for now. Now, the first big decision to be made were the war aims. Was this about deposing Dispenser, or was this a full-on coup d'etat? Well, if they choose the former, then their prospects were not good if history was any guide. 
The Spencer had already survived a number of major rebellions, and let's not forget the last group of barons to overthrow and kill the king's favourite were now all either dead on the battlefield or executed. It became clear that they had to go all in. This was not about protecting the king from his favourite anymore, it was now about protecting the kingdom from the weakness of its king. At least that's what their propaganda said. They had the queen and the heir to the throne. The board was set, the pieces were beginning to move. Back in England, Edward's complacency had screeched to an abrupt halt once he had heard about the marriage alliance between his son and Philippa of Hainaut. There was also a fear that they could be joined by a French royal army, a repeat of the invasion by the French Dauphin Louis in the First Barons' War. And of course, that had all led to the defeat of King John and the Magna Carta. Those barons had allowed John to live, but things would probably not work out as well for Edward. The king sent frantic letters to anyone who he thought might listen, including Charles IV, every significant French lord, and even the Pope. He also declared that no one was to leave England. The kingdom was hunkering down for an invasion. In the early months of 1326, things appeared to be slipping from Isabella's grasp before they had even started. Members of her retinue and some allies started to slip back to England, possibly due to them getting cold feet or disgust at the adulterous queen. The king exploited this in a proclamation that served as his call to arms to the kingdom. Quote, the queen will not come to the king, nor permit his son to return, and the king understands that she is adopting the council of the Mortimer, the king's notorious enemy, and that she is making alliances with the men of those parts and with other strangers with intent to invade. Edward's appeal to the Pope also led to representatives of him arriving at the court of Isabella, urging her to reconcile with her husband. The papacy was rarely happy when the great Christian kings of Europe fought amongst themselves, especially when there was crusading to do, but Isabella was resolute. Her reputation, though, was being hammered thanks to Edwardian propaganda. She told those representatives what her terms were. She would only return if Dispenser and all his party were to be exiled and that her position as queen be restored along with all her revenues. Now, of course, this was obviously never going to happen, despite it clearly being in Edward's interests. But the one most angry with the steel was Mortimer, who in the heat of the moment reportedly threatened to kill Isabella should she ever even dream of returning to her husband. Now, Isabella obviously ignored this threat, so perhaps it was said in the heat of passion, but it does show Mortimer's jealous and hot-headed nature. The king clearly saw that his son Prince Edward was another weak link in Isabella's plan. He had never been thrilled at the prospect of rebelling, and it was known that the prince despised Mortimer. In March 1326, Edward sent his son a letter that contained this passage. Quote, you say that you cannot return to us because of your mother. It causes us great uneasiness of heart that you cannot be allowed by her to do that which is your natural duty, the neglect of which would lead to much mischief. Fair son, you know how dearly she would have been loved and cherished if she had timely come according to her duty to her lord. We have knowledge of much of her evil doings to our sorrow, how that she devised pretenses for absenting herself on account of our dear and faithful nephew, Hewlett Spencer, who has always so well and loyally served us, while you and all the world have seen that she openly and notoriously, and knowing it to be contrary to her duty and against the welfare of our crown, has attached to herself and retains in her company the Mortimer, our traitor and mortal foe. Proved attainted and adjudged, and him she accompanies in the house and abroad, despite of us and our crown and of the right ordering of the realm. 
This is Edward's full manifesto now. The Queen has gone beyond her job description and was a traitor. She is a terrible wife, a terrible Queen and a truly terrible mother. Now, though Isabella was losing support from some quarters, as the year moved into the summer, she began to gain followers to her cause. According to the chronicler Jean Foissard, quote, All the barons and thoughtful people of the country saw that it, meaning the regime of dispenser, was not to be endured, and that they could no longer tolerate his wicked, outrageous behaviour. Prominent nobles like the new Earl of Lancaster, the Earl of Norfolk, Thomas of Brotherton, who you may remember as being the king's half-brother from episode 16, Margaret of France, and Bishop Orleton all pledged their support to Isabella. Everything seemed set for an invasion, but then a bombshell hit. The Pope withdrew any support from Isabella. He wrote to Charles IV admonishing him for harbouring rebellious adulterers, and ordered him to withdraw his support and shelter for them on pain of excommunication. Charles, whose wife, if you remember, had been one of the adulterers in the Tordenelle scandal, summoned Isabella and ordered her to abandon her quest and to go home. But he clearly did not know his sister. She was not about to be told what to do by yet another man in her life. She was ordered to leave Charles's kingdom, and with this withdrawal of support went all her French allies buying Robert of Artois, who was hardly the greatest catch. Isabella and Roger then set up permanent base in Hainaut and started a proper invasion planning. It was now or never. On the 22nd of September 1326, Isabella and Mortimer boarded their invasion fleet. This was the first time since Eleanor of Aquitaine that an English queen had led an armed rebellion against her husband, and I'm sure that must have been at the fore of Isabella's mind. Eleanor's rebellion had barely lasted a month, and had led to her imprisonment for nearly 20 years. This, though, would be different. After two long days in the choppy North Sea, they landed in Suffolk, and were immediately met by the earls of Kent and Norfolk, who pledged their armies to her. They then pushed west, expecting at any moment to be met by a royal army. But none came. Ipswich opened its gates willingly to the Queen, as did Cambridge, where she was met by a throng of bishops giving their blessing, which was key given that she was hardly the model of religious virtue. Where were Edward's armies? They had melted away. Edward and Dispenser may have had all the money, but no one wanted to fight for them. They alienated everyone, and now they were alone in the tower with only a few guards and a huge pile of useless gold. Knowing that Isabella was only a few miles away, they fled west, but were nearly intercepted by Lancaster, who Edward then found out had also betrayed him, though that could hardly have been much of a surprise given what the king had done to Lancaster's brother, the previous earl. With the queen and Lancaster in hot pursuit, the royal party reached Cardiff and attempted to flee to Ireland, where they might find some respite, but sadly the weather gods were not with them, and after a few days fruitlessly at sea, they were forced to return to the city. Dispenser's father, meanwhile, had been left with a small garrison at Bristol Castle, where he fought a delaying action for his son, but Mortimer was no match for him. The elder Dispenser was brought to the Queen in chains. Now, again, like last time, I will warn you, there is some pretty graphic revenge executing about to happen, so prepare your stomachs for returning. Yet another kangaroo court was convened, and the cycle of violence continued, as Dispenser was dragged through the streets from a cart, before being hung, drawn and quartered, his head sent to his old stomping ground of Winchester, and his body fed to the dogs. Did I mention that this was getting really, really, really personal? The king's fate was really rather pathetic. Once they had arrived back in Wales, they must have heard about the fate of Dispenser the Elder, and known the walls of Cardiff would not stop Mortimer's army. 
They fled into the Welsh interior but were intercepted by Lancaster of Lantrisson. The king was taken by Lancaster to Monmouth Castle, but Dispenser was shown no mercy at all. He decided that rather from giving his opponents the satisfaction of executing him, he would starve himself to death. He failed in this, but did succeed in accelerating his execution, as there was a concern that he would not survive the trip to London. On the 24th of November, he was brought before the Queen, heard the long, 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 long list of charges against him, was prevented from speaking on his own behalf, and was then hung from the neck, and, while still alive, publicly castrated, and his genitals burned before him, a visible symbol of the sexual crimes he was accused of committing with the king. He was then given the traditional drawing of entrails, meted out for traitors, before the mercy of a beheading, whereupon his body was quartered. Isabella watched all of this with an undisguised delight. The man who had tormented her for so long was dead at her command. Her useless husband was at her mercy in a castle dungeon. She had her son with her, and her handsome, virile lover Mortimer there to lead her armies, and, you know, other things. She had won, but there was one question now on everyone's lips. What was she going to do next? Next time, we shall find out, as the cycle of violence, repression and revenge will continue, as poor old England would find that their saviours from tyranny were really not all that much better, or indeed different, than their old masters. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.